millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
Hi there and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Um, today I'm kind of interested in the strategic picture um, as it was presented to the Austro-Hungarian Empire uh, at the beginning of the First World War. We, we talk an awful lot about the, you know, the Schlieffen Plan and the fact that uh, Germany um, has to mobilise quickly in the West against um, uh, the French and the Belgians and the, the, the British, um, and then you know needs to the the plans to re- regroup and face a, a slower but bigger uh, Russian threat with Russia's uh, huge army. But the the picture as it is presents um, itself in 1914 for Austria-Hungary is anything more more complicated and very little gets said about this. Um, So I'm looking once again at Ring of Steel by Alexander Watson. Now if you've listened to this podcast um, in the the recent or the further uh, past, the the distant past, you know I've referred to this book quite a few times Uh, and it's an excellent um, excellent source of um, uh, of knowledge and understanding uh, on the the view that the central powers had of the uh, problems that faced them and the threats that they perceived, um, and it, it it always helps, particularly if you're listening to this in the kind of what we call like the the Anglo sphere world. It, it always helps our understanding of the war to look at how uh, how perceptions of uh, in, in the central powers how those perceptions shaped actions okay so Alexander Watson writes the Austro-Hungarian army's task in the European war was at first glance straightforward during the six weeks in which its ally obviously Germany defeated France it was to bear the main burden of holding the Russians in the east However, Conrad, the uh, chief of the general staff of the Austro-Hungarian army, unlike Moltke, his German equivalent, uh, could not simply plan for one major attack in um, in a number of uh, uh, um, one major attack. Um, the predators that surrounded the empire could plausibly attack in a number of combinations. So, unlike their German allies, with their obsessive focus on one single scheme. The Austro-Hungarians had stacks of war plans. There were plans for conflict with Russia, war case R, in the Balkans, war case B, and although formerly an ally with Italy, war case I. And of course the Austro-Hungarians fight all of these uh, campaigns. The army also prepared to deploy against combinations of these enemies and um, a case considered hopeless even by the optimists of the Habsburg General Staff against all three in alliance. In order to meet all eventualities, Conrad divided his operational force into three groups. A Echelon, the strongest group, with nine uh, corps uh, containing 27 of the army's 48 infantry divisions, was intended to provide protection against Russia. The Balkan minimal group of three corps with nine divisions, had the task of defending against Serbia and Montenegro. Finally, there was a swing group, B Echelon, which comprised 12 divisions that could be sent wherever needed. The circumstances of July 1914 presented two possibilities for uh, for this Echelon. Habsburg leaders had to decide whether they faced War Case B, a conflict solely against Serbia, 
or whether Russia would intervene, bringing about war case B plus R. In the former case, B echelon was to be sent to the southern border for an offensive. In the latter, it would urgently be, uh, be required in Galicia, um, what is now Poland, um, where with the units of A echelon, it would take part in an attack intended to disrupt the Tsarist Empire's mobilization. So this is a, a really, really complex picture. But if you look geographically where the Austro-Hungarian Empire is, it, it's not uh, kind of positioned in, in, in a particularly optimal, optimal way. You know, it's smack bang in Central Europe between Russia, between the Balkans, um, and between and, you know, Italy to the south, and obviously um, Germany as, it, as its next neighbour. So it... it is going to face these these sorts of challenges. Um, one of the one of the difficulties as well is coordinating with Germany's uh, Germany's war plans. Germany committed itself uh, in nineteen fourteen wholeheartedly to Austria Hungary, knowing that if Austria Hungary was to fall, Germany had uh, would be completely isolated in Europe. But of course, Germany turns out to be militarily the stronger of the two powers uh, and is economically the stronger of the two powers and so kind of calls the shots in the alliance uh, and, and has for much of the war the, um, the upper hand, um, leaving Austria-Hungary in a position where they had to fight a, um, fight a war with Russia that um, served Germany's interests as much as it served theirs. Conrad's plans, comfortingly, appeared to deal with all eventualities, yet there were fatal flaws, writes Alexander Watson, which, combined with indecision and wishful thinking on the part of the chief of the general staff, disrupted mobilisation and severely damaged Habsburg hopes of any early victory. First, the railway plan was geared to flexibility when what was really needed was speed. The four corps allocated to the swing B echelon all lay far from Galicia but had access to good railways. The Budapest fourth corps could travel from uh, could travel to uh, the eastern fort fortress city of Pramizhal um, on the double track on, on a double track line. The Prague eighth and uh, light merits Ninth uh, Corps were on the monarchy's most modern railway artery, the Nordbahn. If speed had been the priority, then it would have been optimal to transport these distant units first and then start moving divisions of A echelon, which, uh, most of which were based close to the battlefront. However, Conrad's demand for flexibility meant that the army's rail experts did the opposite. B echelon was to be held stationary while A echelon was loaded into the first transports. Okay, so the question is, why is Conrad interested in flexibility over speed of deployment? And it's because there is there's a multiplicity of potential threats. Conrad is looking at the international situation, seeing who is mobilising and at what speed and at what rate and why and what the future position might be and thinking 
Well, we need to maintain and retain flexibility because you don't know, for example, what Italy is going to do, what Italy will decide to do. Um, we don't know how quickly Germany might conquer France or not. Uh, and so um, it's, it's hardly, I would say, it was, you know, Conrad is hardly to be blamed here. Um, the situation meant that he had to maintain flexibility, whereas um, in the case of the Schlieffen plan, because there was there were there were no other variables that were entertained other than get to France quickly, defeat France quickly, get um, turn around, fight, get to face Russia with as many forces as you can do, um, and fight a long drawn out war there. Or well, hopefully not long drawn out, but that was what they were kind of I I imagining. Um, worse still, the delay was compounded by the military uh, the military rail technicians' ridiculously cautious timetabling. The regulation speed for Habsburg military transports on single tracks was just eleven kilometers per hour. On double track lines, they were expected to reach a heady eighteen kilometers per hour. The trains themselves were permitted to be no more than 49 wagons long, comparable to other armies' transports, but just half the length of the civilian trains that usually travelled on the Nordbahn. Stops of six in every 24 hours for fuel and feeding were calculated into the deployment programme. How slow all this was... Um, all this was is clear from the comparison with the French and German armies which assumed basic speeds of 30 kilometers per hour for their mobilization transports. These calculations matter. Um, this, this was not a, a petty or a minor thing. These calculations are, are hugely important. If somebody is um, in the, the kind of like the theater of, um, of, of, of combat, you know, 24 to 48 hours quicker than the enemy, um, then their ability to, to mobilise their forces and prepare and everything else is, is, is obviously vastly superior and the, the outcome of military campaigns is based on this sort of thing. The result was that even under the best circumstances a Habsburg general mobilisation against the Tsarist Empire would be tardy. The Russians expected their enemy to complete concentration against them in 15 days. However, under the Austro-Hungarian military, uh, um, uh, military rail plan, the final units of B echelon deployed uh, only on the 24th day of mobilisation, so a full nine days later than the Russians had expected. The prioritisation of flexibility over speed in Conrad's plans therefore negated one of the real advantages that the Habsburg army possessed. The, the Russians planned by their 24th day of mobilisation to have 37.5 infantry divisions on the Galician front, just two fewer than their enemy. By the 30th day they would enjoy a significant numerical superiority with 45 infantry and more than 18 cavalry divisions. So this slowness of mobilisation threw away the only advantage that Austria-Hungary could have had. It can't outnumber the Russians, but it can get to the battlefield faster, it can move faster, and yet it, it doesn't. The Austro-Hungarian army could ill afford to sacrifice this single advantage, for its multinational character made it difficult to command, and the Hungarian parliament's obstreperousness had left it undermanned and underfunded. It exhibited structural complexity typical of Habsburg institutions. The common army was the main force with two-thirds of the empire's infantry and nearly all its artillery and cavalry. 
alongside it with the Hungarian Honvéd and Austrian uh, uh, Austrian Austrian uh, well, the Austrian Landwehr formations, uh, originally intended as a second-line national guards, but which were um, uh, which through decades of Magyar parliamentary pressure had developed into first-line forces. A small Croatian-Slovenian force, the Domobran, served with the Honved, uh, reflecting the autonomous position of Croatia within the lands of St. Stephen. The common army recruited from all parts of the empire, while um, the other formations drew their soldiers exclusively from Hungary, Austria or Croatia respectively. The army was a dynastic force, all of its parts owed allegiance solely to Franz Josef as emperor, Austrian emperor uh, or king of Hungary and Croatia. So the the, the multi-ethnic nature of the Austro-Hungarian army, uh, reflecting the Austro-Hungarian the nature of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, um, creates kind of complexity. Obviously, you know, when in, in, in popular culture and, and general kind of myth about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, often people often talk about its kind of complex and kind of bureaucratic and Byzantine nature. Um, and, and to some extent, this is actually reflected in uh, military mobilisation. As, as we know, coordination and the speed of mobilisation, uh, even here, even now in the 21st century, is, is, is absolutely crucial. Um, and the, the more complex and confused and chaotic the Austro-Hungarian army was, um, not because it was, it wasn't chaotic in um, necessarily in a, a kind of a poorly funded, poorly managed way. Uh, Austro-Hungarian society is um, and, and uh, government is, is a kind of like um, um, a, a, a highly highly functioning system, but it, it it's kind of bogged down in officialdom and bogged down in caution. Um, it's highly bureaucratic, and also it is um, it, it it's it is the product of the empire that created it, this this multi-ethnic patchwork empire. While well, the German and French conscripts for, conscript forces were, in the jargon of the time, people's armies, composed of each nation's manhood, the Austro-Hungarians fielded, uh, as, its, uh, as its history proudly asserted, an army of peoples. The ethnic composition of the forces' rank and file um, closely mirrored that of the empire which it served and from which it was drawn. The Habsburg army had followed other European forces and switched to territorial recruitment in 1882, raising units within 16 core districts. Um, the, um, a measure of that, uh, that accelerated mobilisation and limited the mixing of nationalities. Even so, the force still had to overcome considerable communication challenges. It, on the subject of nationalities, this is, this is really interesting and really telling. And the, the previous conversation, uh, the podcast we had about the Austro-Hungarian Empire, pointed towards the idea that having uh, separate Czech, Hungarian, uh, Croat uh, and uh, other 
nationality groups, um, nationality regiments and divisions within the Austro-Hungarian Empire is one of the um, causes of the Austro-Hungarian Empire's fragmentation and collapse uh, by 1918. What what happens is that um, the, the, the various suppressed nationalisms which weren't quite as powerful as uh, in, in, in 1914 as, 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 as people might think. They weren't necessarily going to uh, emerge, you know, independent nation states weren't particularly likely to emerge. And there was a, a lot of loyalty and goodwill towards uh, the, the emperor. But the experience of war and the hardships of war and the idea that you have um, Croats or Czechs fighting for something. Um, the you know, nationalist ideas and, 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 and nationalist sentiments and nationalist aspirations are very easy to introduce at this stage and you know think, think well if we are fighting and being killed in the trenches let us let us fight for um, a, a a nation uh, of our own so even so the force still had to overcome considerable communications challenges these were resolved in the first instance by designating one tongue as the language of command and the language of service this was german in the common army uh, and landwehr hungarian in the honved and croatian in the domobran each soldier learned eight were 80 words in this language so that he understood basic commands like attention at ease or fire the men also memorised uh, around a thousand technical terms, including the names for parts of their weaponry. Conversation um, might not be, be possible, but soldiers from different corners of the empire should be able to strip their rifles or service a field gun together. Additionally, to facilitate everyday communication at lower levels of the military organisation, any tongue spoke by at least 20% uh, of soldiers in a regiment, a unit of around 3,000 men, was designated a regimental language. In 1914, even though the army was territorially raised, only, 100, um, only 142 regiments, fewer than half in total, were sufficiently ethnically homogenous to be considered monolingual. Some 162 regiments officially had two languages, 24 used three and there were even a few regiments raised from areas so mixed that four languages had to be recognized any new officer arriving at a regiment had three years to learn its languages the duty was taken seriously for the men had a right to speak in their to, uh, in their own tongues to their superiors up to company commander and failure meant delayed promotion or even dismissal most Habsburg professional officers were therefore proficient in at least two tongues. The core high flyers usually spoke more. Conrad, for example, had mastered seven. So this, this is interesting. This kind of really tells us something, doesn't it, um, about the uh, importance that uh, Austria-Hungary attached to the, the uh, kind of accommodating and um, adapting to the kind of linguistic needs at the very least of its soldiers. The officer corps, which numbered 18,506 professionals and 13,293 reserve officers, was the army's greatest asset. The corps shared its Prussian allies' aristocratic ethos and honour credo, but its social profile was much less exalted. 
two decades before the war, the share of nobles amongst career officers had been 28.6%, but it had fallen by 1914. Most professional officers were of Austrian-German stock, although four-fifths suggested it was the, uh, in the official figures, um, is probably an exaggeration. Perhaps one-sixth were from Slavic backgrounds. Whatever their origins, the vast majority were a-national, identifying only with the Austrian state idea and their feudal lord, the emperor. Recruitment for both professional and reserve corps was blind to ethnicity and confession. One of the consequences was that Jews, who were informally but totally barred from commissions in the pre-war Prussian army, were four times overrepresented in Habsburg Reserve Corps. Uh, making up no less than 70% of its officers. Now, this fact alone raises all sorts of interesting questions uh, about the prevalence and nature of anti-Semitism in Germany and Austria-Hungary uh, before the First World War. Um, Richard J. Evans, uh, in his book The Coming of the Third Reich, makes a point that in terms of attitudes towards Jewish people, in uh, Germany and, and Austria-Hungary, uh, there, there, you know, the, the the track record prior to the First World War is, is really quite positive, and the, the degree of assimilation of Jewish people into uh, German and Austrian society was, was was significant and and far greater than, for example, in France or, or Russia, um, the, the the two countries with the most kind of outrageously bad records of anti-Semitic violence before the First World War. Of course, there are these um, uh, institutional bars to uh, Jewish advancement, such as the example of the uh, uh, bar on joining the Prussian uh, officer corps. Uh, and and this is this is bad. And um, uh, but in t in terms of um, the kind of uh, the the raw violent anti-Semitism and conspiratorial uh, thinking uh, that becomes uh, prevalent in Germany uh, and and Austria um, in the nineteen thirties. There, there's there's very little of that. Um, Again, the the likes of of um, of, of Hitler um, and the other kind of anti-Semitic kind of fringe uh, kind of ranting um, uh, sort of propagandists and pamphleteers, they they exist in, in a, a kind of like a, a sort of very, very um, kind of marginal capacity before the First World War, and it's. Um, the the kind of the trauma and the crisis of the First World War, and also of the 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 fact that Germany and Austria Hungary are defeated, um, create these conditions for uh, a, a kind of a marginal concept, uh, a marginal prejudice that, that to kind of pr proliferate, uh, and the, these sorts of things they really do shine a light on the the this kind of um, Goldhagenish. Sort of ideas of uh, you know eliminationist anti-Semitism and it was always there in German society. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, anti-Semitism has been uh, prevalent in European societies um, since the end of the Roman Empire, um, but the idea of kind of the Holocaust as some kind of historical inevitability is is really questioned by the uh, the, the fact that. Uh, Jewish people, in particularly in, in, in this 
example and there are others manage to find places for advancement and acceptance um, during uh, the First World War. However, Austrian officers were poorer. Um, they uh, had a lower social status than their German counterparts and were often very resentful of, of, of this kind of thing. The, these attitudes, writes uh, Alexander Watson, combined with a Habsburg officer's lesser social status, education and pay, comparing poorly with those of their German counterparts, influenced its command style and performance. Inter-rank relations in the, uh, in the Habsburg army were indifferent, better than those in its, Russia, in its Russian enemy, for sure, but not so trusting um, as in the German military, even though its officers had to spend more time uh, than German officers instructing their men because their companies had only um, uh, between one and three professional NCOs, non-commissioned officers. This was not merely a matter of communication difficulties, whereas the liberal reform of the Prussian um, uh, of the Prussian discipline had taken place at the start of the nineteenth century. It was not until eighteen seventy three, um, uh, uh, not until eighteen seventy three, had more socially detached had the had the more socially detached Habsburg force finally instructed its commanders to show sympathy and get to know and understand their subordinates. So. Traditions such as uh, kind of corporal punishment, flogging, um, and other other kind of disciplinary tactics, and that kind of sort of haughty aloofness uh, and 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 elitism, uh, whilst that's always going to be prevalent within uh, European armies at the time, it was only in the eighteen seventies that these sorts of attitudes were being encouraged to to be dropped, so that there could be some sort of kind of esprit de corps, some kind of relationship between leaders and men. Um, it's not to suggest that um, the German army compared to the Austrians was some sort of kind of um, a fraternity, sort of peace-loving fraternity. Uh, far from it. There are hierarchies and elitism and class there as well. But it was more common that a general would get down from his horse and walk amongst the men and talk to them um, and, and ask them how they were and give them the time of day. And less common in the Austrian army. On the other hand, the corps' self-isolation and rejection of civil society probably reinforced its intense devotion to the emperor. The sacrifice that it made during the war was astonishingly high. 31.3% of professional officers and 16.5% of reserve officers fell in imperial service. The common army's biggest problem was with, uh, with its men was that it simply did not have enough. Its 1,687,000 strong field army was dwarfed by the 3.4 million soldiers of the mobilised Russian force. Additionally, the low proportion of, male pop uh, 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 of the male population drafted in peace meant there was a relatively small pool of trained reserves to act as casualty replacements in war. The manpower pool from which the army recruited was very mixed. In the west of the empire, educational standards and the acceptance of state power were a little different from that of the Western nations. In peacetime, just 3% of the German-speaking German Austrians had attempted to dodge the three-year uh, military conscription. If the disgruntled but well-educated in the disgruntled but well-educated Czech lands, six to seven percent of men ignored the summons to the colours. 
By contrast, Hungarians, who still bore a grudge for the Habsburg soldiers' brutal suppression of their 1848 revolution and disliked the common army, had an absentee rate before the war of a little over 25%. Worst of all, when uh, um, in, in um, with the Galicia and South Slav lands, uh, areas where, with much illiteracy and irredentist movements, as well as high emigration, where resistance in the la- uh, in the last decade of peace had risen to the point that over one third of those must have failed to present themselves. Of course, war was very, a very different situation. Punishment for disobedience was more severe, and a wave of patriotism did sweep the empire as hostilities broke out. Um, Nonetheless, it was inevitable that units raised in different parts of the empire would, in war, display wildly differing capabilities and performance. Scepticism about the loyalty of some peoples also prevailed. As the Habsburg War Minister's aide-de-camp remarked of South Slav reservists on the eve of the war, they will arrive at the depots all confident, but they'll already be less willing when it comes time to march. Whether they attack over the last thousand meters, no one can give any sure guarantee. Okay, well, there we'll finish. Thanks very much for listening once again. Um, and just to let you know, there is lots and lots of really cool new content going on explaininghistory.org. Do go and check it out. Um, there's lots of stuff for students there. Uh, and um, some useful uh, useful content in our little store that we've set up so yes do give it a look um, and uh, pass on the word if you are a, a, if you're if you're studying history and um, you are um, find this useful let everybody else know because uh, it does help to spread the word a little bit and uh, keeps the, the whole the whole thing going anyway they will finish thanks very much take good care everybody all the best bye bye
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.